Well, hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the Dr. Joe Galati podcast, broadcasting high above the Texas Medical Center in Houston, purveyor of all things related to the liver, health and wellness, nutrition, food and cooking, and all around doctor banter and witty repartee with our experts that visit us. Our website is drjoegalati.com. If you'd like to send me a note, subscribe to our newsletter, or even see me as a patient. If you want to call and be part of the program, dial us at 888-438-9431. And now, on with the podcast. Welcome back, everybody. Dr. Joe Galati. Thanks for tuning in tonight. Remember, we're here to raise your health IQ one listener at a time. Every program, every week, every month, we provide you with actionable information that you could hear tonight and put into action immediately. Don't forget, drjoegalati.com is our website. I want to thank Mike Emanuel for that interview talking about COVID. He's always very enlightening. Uh, So thank you, Mike, again. All right. So as we were talking earlier, the month of October, all October, all 31 days, is Liver Cancer Awareness Month. And I have in the studio here today Dr. Suda Kadali. She is a liver specialist, a hepatologist at the Sherry and Allen Conover Center for Liver Disease and Transplantation at Houston Methodist. That is a mouthful. And I am happy to say she is a colleague of mine. Suda, welcome to the radio tonight. Good evening. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Galati. And it's a, I just want to wish a very good evening to everyone who's tuning in. Absolutely. Now, the numbers, you know, a lot of people may be thinking, okay, I know about breast cancer and lung cancer and skin cancer. Liver, liver cancer is sort of under the radar screen. There's about 43,000 new cases a year. That sort of dwarfs the 105,000 of colon cancer and 228,000 of lung cancer. But these, uh, these are significant um, conditions. So when we are talking about liver cancer, for everybody listening tonight, what exactly are we predominantly talking about? So that's a very good question and a very important question. So liver cancer is, you know, two different kinds when you want to just broadly talk about it. One is primary liver cancer, Mm -hmm. which is cancer that arises from the liver itself. And then we talk about metastatic disease, meaning a cancer that arises somewhere else in the body and then can metastasized or can go to the liver. Uh, So that's secondary disease or metastatic disease. Now, when we talk about primary liver cancer, as you described, it's a huge problem. It's the sixth most common cancer worldwide, and it's the third most common cancer-related uh, uh, cause for death. So it's it's a huge disease burden. It's a bad condition, and there are modifiable risk factors that we could you know discuss um, later, which will reduce the incidence or the risk of the disease. Yeah, you know that is really the key thing. So you could be sitting at home and saying, "Okay, liver cancer. How does it affect me?" But 
when we go through the, the risk factors, and really this is where we need everybody that is tuned in, whether you're in your car, you're sitting at home, you're making lunch for tomorrow, you have to say, wait a second, I fit into a certain risk category, my wife, my husband, my kid, my father, my best friend, and that is the value here of this conversation tonight. So why why don't we just go through the the risk factors, and this is where everybody has to listen and key in and think, do I fit in a category? Yes. So I think knowing the risk factors is extremely important because then, you know, you can talk with your primary care physician or your doctor and say, well, I've had these, you know, medical issues for all this time. And what do I need to know about or do further to reduce my risk of cancer? So broadly, or most important uh, causes or risk factors for liver cancer include anything that causes cirrhosis of the liver. So Mm -hmm. that's the most important thing to know. And what causes cirrhosis? In general population, we see this a lot in the office also, where you say cirrhosis, patient just looks at you and says, well, how do I have cirrhosis? I've never had alcohol. I've never consumed even a drop of alcohol. But alcohol or alcohol-related cirrhosis is one of the very few causes, and there's multiple other reasons to have cirrhosis. So hepatitis B, Mm -hmm. hepatitis C infection, uh, alcohol, of course, is an important risk factor, but more than that, we are seeing an increasing number of patients with fatty liver who develop cirrhosis, and that's going to be a most important, I think, modifiable risk factor. Uh, that will reduce the risk of liver cancer if uh, a patient recognizes it and works on risk reduction. Now, the other risk factors include smoking. Patients who have been on um, certain medications that could cause inflammation over time in the liver. And there's a lot of rare genetic disorders that can increase the risk for cancer. Sure. Now, you mentioned two things, hepatitis B and hepatitis C. So our public address comment for the night is if you are a baby boomer, we'll just start with that group, between uh, born between 1945 and 1965, you need to get checked for hepatitis C. Uh, now, again, you see it every day. I see it. Oh, I, I don't have risk factors for hepatitis C. I've, I've been a good boy. I've been a good girl. I, I never uh, used needles. I've never been promiscuous. Why do I need to be checked? So it's, that's a very good question also. Um, the reason baby boomers need to be tested is a lot of these folks have received blood transfusions because hepatitis C diagnosis and testing for that came about around 1982. So anyone who received blood products before that time frame, patients who've been on dialysis, mm-hmm. all these patients are at risk for um, hepatitis uh, C infection. Also, when a, you know when it was retrospectively or you know when you go back and look at the at risk population mm-hmm. folks who at that time frame or born in that 20 year time interval were the ones who were exposed to injection drug use at some point in their life or might have received tattoos or again women especially you know hysterectomy related blood transfusions and other things so those are the risk factors for hepatitis C and again this is a silent disease so unless you actually get tested for it there's no way to know if you have it or not and really a brief word with hepatitis B some overlapping risk factors with hepatitis C, but predominantly the Asian community, still uh, a week may not go by where somebody that was born in Asia is 55, 60 years old, and only now they are being tested for hepatitis B. 
That's very true. Especially here in Houston, we have a huge immigrant population, and we do see a lot of patients from Southeast Asia, India, Pakistan, who've you know been here in the U.S. for several years. And the folks who've recently immigrated, they've actually received vaccination, and they don't know that they have hepatitis B unless you know their liver enzymes go up or there's another reason to test for hepatitis B, and then they get diagnosed. So it's extremely important to look for or screen for hepatitis B in those specific patient population. Now, you, you, you touched on alcohol. And um, one of the funnier things, and, and this is not funny in the, in the sense of um, me or you cracking up over this, but there is a sense that beer is okay. I don't touch the hard stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't drink wine. I don't drink spirit. But a six-pack of beer a night? You know, what's what's wrong with that, Dr. Galati? Um, comment on that for everybody, because, again, I think this is one of those eye-opening statements that will help a lot of people. That's very true, and we see this all the time in the office. When we talk to patients and we ask them, do you drink alcohol? A lot of times the answer is no. no. Right. You, have, <laughs> you have to specifically ask, do you drink beer, wine, liquor, or anything? And then also the amount of alcohol that's felt to be okay versus not also varies uh, a lot in the, in the clinic when we see patients. So beer also has alcohol. Uh, one uh, serving of beer, which is about 12 ounces beer has about 5% of alcohol. So depending on the kind of drink one is consuming, the amount of alcohol varies. And it's really important to know that any kind of beverage that has any amount of alcohol still can cause damage to the liver. We're going to take a break right now. But the, the, the main thing here is awareness. And when you talk about liver cancer, yes, these things just happen out of the blue. Somebody has no risk factors and it's, it's a horrible case. But when you look back at many of the cases with liver cancer and you really dissect the case, they've had hepatitis B or hepatitis C or periods of heavy alcohol. And it makes sense at that point. All right, we're going to take a break. Final segment coming up. Liver cancer is the topic of the night. I'm Dr. Joe Galati. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Final segment of Your Health First. Medical knowledge insight, inspiration, and good music. Andrew behind the bulletproof glass there is picking the music tonight, so thank you. All right, we are talking with Dr. Suda Kadali from Houston Methodist Hospital, a hepatologist which means she studies the liver, as do I and our awesome team that we have at Houston Methodist and the Sherry and Allen Conover Center for Liver Disease and Transplantation. Now, we've been talking about liver cancer, and if you missed the beginning of the program, October is Liver Cancer Awareness Month. And you might probably saying, what? Liver cancer? Who knew? I, mean, I can't keep track. What color is the ribbon? Is it? Is it? green or what it's green 
It is green. Yeah, I've I've run out of the rainbow of colors for all these different <laughs> awareness months. But uh, anyway, um, so we're talking about liver cancer, and the key thing from the first part of the the segment here was sort of having a certain understanding of what your risk factors may be. Now, so to get into some of the symptoms that you may have, and these could be very vague, and then how you, the patient, the person listening, if it is you, what should the next steps be? So that's also a very important question. So a lot of patients, unfortunately, do not have symptoms uh, till they have advanced disease. Right. And the ones that present with symptoms, the symptoms can range anywhere from abdominal pain, mostly on the right side, because that's where our liver is, right under the ribcage, uh, turning yellow or jaundice, decreased appetite, not wanting to eat and eat, getting full really fast, nausea. Uh, these are usually the symptoms when patients present with usually advanced disease. Now, if the cancer has gone to the bones, then they can also complain of bone pain. And depending on where the cancer goes outside the liver, they can have symptoms related to that. I, you know, I look at that and, and we can substitute breast cancer, lung cancer, colon cancer in a sense. And I'm, I'm a little tough here. That is a failure of the entire system where the patient starting at the top moping around with abdominal pain, weight loss, nausea, loss of appetite. Maybe they go to the ER, maybe they don't, they get some blood work, and then they show up in your office with metastatic widespread disease. I mean, it really is a shame. So again, we are stressing, know your risk factors, listen to your body, and and get action early. Yes, it's really heartbreaking when you see young patients who've had these symptoms ongoing for months not get the right kind of diagnosis and present very late to our office or to the clinic where there's not a whole lot you can do for these patients. If they present early, of course, the treatment options are too many, very good right. options to treat the cancer. But someone who presents in the late stage of disease, you can't do a whole lot uh, to, to help these patients. Sure. And, and typically, besides the blood work and the physical exam, Imaging of some kind is is going to be what you'll be sent for. That's correct. So again, really important to uh, pay attention to this for all our listeners today. Uh, if you've ever been told that your liver enzymes are elevated or you have fatty liver or you have hepatitis B, but it doesn't need to be treated. Or yeah, you have hepatitis C, but it's not active. Don't worry about it. We just keep an eye on it. You are the folks who need to go and talk to your primary care physician and say, listen, I heard that I'm at risk for liver cancer. And the screening test, the simplest test that you could get is a sonogram, an ultrasound of the liver, along with a tumor marker called alpha fetoprotein or AFP, together can diagnose patients with cancers early on. Uh, we talk about sensitivity and specificity when it comes to tests and test results, and these two together are pretty good initial screening tests. Now, of course, if we see a mass based on the ultrasound, then you get a better imaging study like a CT scan or an MRI, and if the diagnosis is not clear, then you talk about doing a liver biopsy, which we don't typically do, but that's a, that's a definitive diagnosis is what we call it when we sample the tissue and mm -hmm, see what it mm -hmm. is. Yeah. The other, the other point, the other big point uh, that you, you – brought out this um, in neglect, in a sense, of these all these abnormal tests is fatty liver, underdiagnosed under and undertreated. It's just sort of, oh, it's, you know, everybody's got fatty liver. Come on, look at us all. Everybody's got fatty liver, and I'm just one of a million 
so again, if you have been told a fatty liver, uh, it has to be thoroughly worked up and investigated. So in the unforeseen situation that a liver cancer is discovered, it's caught, and let's say it's at a good stage, what are the the range of, of therapies that somebody's looking at? So it's amazing how the treatment options depend on when a patient presents. When I say amazing, if somebody gets diagnosed early on and gets seen by us, you know, when they have limited disease or a small tumor or two or three just restricted or within the liver, there's a lot of things we can do. We talk about or we look at treatment uh, as a spectrum. So Mm -hmm. somebody who presents early, you say, can we cure this person? And when we talk about cure, we're talking about surgical resection, meaning the surgeons go in and cut out the cancer. And that unfortunately is not the option for most patients that present because a lot of these patients have cirrhosis, but that's something important to know. The second option is called um, local ablation treatment options. And this involves either injecting a chemical Mm -hmm. or using heat or electricity, and we call it microwave ablation or radiofrequency ablation, where the radiology doctors or radiology colleagues go in with a probe and kind of destroy the tumor locally. And the rest of the liver doesn't have to suffer any damage and patients do really well. So these are one end of the spectrum where patients are deemed to be cured after they respond to that specific Mm -hmm. treatment. Now, the biggest option is liver transplant, and that's something that we really have to spend a minute or two talking about. For sure. And transplant becomes an option for patients who cannot be resected, even if they may not have cirrhosis because they have multiple tumors, or it could be an option for someone who has cirrhosis because that cirrhotic liver or the scarred liver will not withstand the stress of surgery. Mm -hmm. So transplant is also considered to be a curative option. Now, the other end of the spectrum is someone who presents with advanced disease where the cancer has gone outside the liver. And in those patients, unfortunately, the treatment options become very limited. Radiation is one of the options. And then we also talk about other local therapies. We call them TACE, which is transarterial chemoembolization, which pretty much means you go in to the tumor and inject chemotherapy beads or tear, where we inject radiation beads to control the disease process. Now, a few of these patients with advanced disease with time may become eligible for transplant and or may not. And of course, patients who are not eligible for transplant and have advanced disease get referred to our oncology colleagues where they get started on chemotherapy medication. You're right. That is a uh, quite a broad set of options. And uh, many times when when uh, you know we're talking to patients and and we tell them you have a favorable tumor, which is sort of an oxymoron. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, you got cancer, but it's 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 great. Uh, that transplant and their their teeth almost fall out to say, are you saying that there is nothing else? There's no chemotherapy, no surgery, and the truth is, no, there really is not. That you know, transplant has to be performed. But while you look at that as such a aggressive, in a sense, you know, an aggressive therapy, mm-hmm. it still is going to get back to what are the things five years ago the patient could have done? Stop drinking, lose weight, get their hepatitis B treated, their hepatitis C. So that is the, the, the takeaway for tonight. So Dr. Kadali, first, thanks for coming in tonight. Uh, on your maiden voyage on the radio, you've done great. But number two, to everybody listening tonight, what's that one take-home you want to leave everybody with? Thank you so much for having me. I really uh, appreciate you for um, having me here today. Um, I guess it comes back down to knowing your risk factors. Sure. So please 
go back, look at your me medical history and look for these five major risk factors we just talked about. Have I been tested for hepatitis C? Anybody about the age of 18 needs to be tested for hepatitis C at least once in their lifetime. Hepatitis B, have I been vaccinated? Do I drink too much alcohol? Mm -hmm. And if I do, should I cut it down or you know, not, not drink a lot? And then working on risk factors for metabolic syndrome, which includes controlling your diabetes, your weight, your blood pressure, and all these things is extremely important. Please talk with your doctor uh, and discuss with them if you're at risk for liver cancer. And if you're someone who's been told you have fatty liver or abnormal liver enzymes, please, please, please ask to be referred to a liver specialist or a GI doctor to be screened and evaluated appropriately. I will add one more please to your please, please, please. Yes. So uh, excellent. All right. Dr. Kadali, Houston Methodist Hospital. Thank you. And for everybody tuning in tonight, thank you. I think you've got your marching orders. Pay attention to your liver. Think about what you're eating, your weight. You know, do you need to be screened for hepatitis B and C? Just go and do it. Until next Sunday night at 7. I'm Dr. Joe Galati. We'll see you then. Thanks for listening today to our podcast. Don't forget, for more information, check out drjoegalati.com. Information about my book, Eating Yourself Sick, is available there, as well as our clinical practice, radio program, and social media links. We need you to be part of our tribe and community. Until we meet again, I'm Dr. Joe Galati. Ciao.